Good morning, everyone. Make sure I have this on. There we go. All right. Welcome back to our study of Ezra. We are in the fourth chapter, but before we begin, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, what have we seen heretofore? I think it's been a meditation on the superabundance of God's grace and mercy toward an undeserving people. When the exile comes, it's but a few decades, and he's already pulling them out, rebuilding the temple. So strong is God's desire to be with his people. And as we've talked, that desire to be with his people in the midst of the temple, that lasts all the way up until the time of our Lord Jesus, where, as John points out in, in his gospel, that Jesus tabernacles among us, and Jesus himself teaches that his body is the temple. We participate in that temple by way of Holy Communion, by partaking of his body and blood. We enter through the veil. We not only enter the temple, we enter through the veil. We are in the holiest of holies. We are united with God. So you see this buildup from, from tabernacle in the wilderness to temple. The great apostasy of the people and the temple is destroyed. A few decades pass and God wants the temple rebuilt. That then climaxes in the incarnation. And in our participation in Christ's incarnation, this new temple through Holy Communion, and all of this leading to the climax of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, the dwelling place of God is with man. Full communion, full communion with God and between God and man. So that in a big picture is where we're going. We see God's grace and mercy. We see God working through the most unlikely of all meanings, turning the hearts of pagan rulers, very cruel pagan rulers, very powerful men, accountable to no one, but turning their hearts in order to serve his people. And so God being merciful to them, even, even over and against the unbelief, the ongoing unbelief of these pagan rulers, uh, from Persia chiefly is what we're talking about here. Um, and the altar is rebuilt, People are granted permission to go back. They begin, they build the altar. They're met with all kinds of hostility. And they're met with delays. And those are challenges to their faith. In many respects, they're challenges to our faith in a parallel kind of way, where we're trying to establish God's kingdom on earth and, uh, and, and push forward the goals and the agenda of the church, the true temple that is Christ, and invite people in and... We're met with opposition and struggle and difficulty. We're not alone in that. All of God's people throughout all the ages have met with that. They remain faithful. They stay the course. They endure. And God's work is accomplished. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer that, that God's work may be done among us also. God's, um, God's will. God's kingdom. That these things would be done and come among us also. Um, they're going to come no matter what. <laughs> God's not up there like, gee, I hope enough people pray so I can bring this about today. Um, no, they're going to come no matter what, but we pray that God would have them come among us also and use and incorporate us and prosper the work of our hands in service of his kingdom. So again, just grace upon grace is really what Ezra has been heretofore. Um, and then not to say not without its, its kind of temporal challenges. As we kind of got to chapter 4, we saw that there was even this issue of like the surrounding peoples that were previously, you know, they had inhabited the land as Judah had been exiled. Um, now, they're, now they're coming back and those, those people are opposing them, but now seeing that they have such uh, strength from the Persian government, they're wanting to, uh, these adversaries are wanting now to ally themselves and kind of engage in a corporate program of rebuilding the temple. Of course, this is just gonna, going to bring syncretism and it's just going to be, you know, more of the old that got them in this mess in the first place. And so the, uh, 
the people of Judah who, who are coming back to rebuild, they say no. They say no. And of course, there's a cost to this because then, then they're discouraged, then they're opposed by their countrymen in the rebuilding of the temple. All right. Well, I think that that takes us roughly through where we had been. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, and again, that, that chapter 4 is just the, uh, the local peoples. Not, hey, if we can't participate with you, if we can't make it syncretistic, <laughs> if we can't pervert it, then we're going to be against you. So maybe we'll just pick up at verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 6, And in the reign of Asuherus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. If you drop down to the study note on verse 6, you'll see there. Uh, Ahasuerus, I don't know, I'll probably pronounce his name 15 different ways, pardon me. Hebrew name of the Persian king, the Greeks called Xerxes. His dates are 486 to 465. Esther became his queen, obviously after whom the book of Esther is named. So there's a tie-in with the book of Esther, and there's a sense of just where we are in the chronology. Again, you've got if you've got the Lutheran Study Bible, if you don't, you should. Even if you're not a Lutheran yet. Get it? It's a great tool. Um, yeah, page 719, you've got that nice little timeline there where, of course, the Jerusalem temple is destroyed 587. Cyrus makes his decree 538. The altar is rebuilt 537. So we're between 537 and 516, where the second temple then is completed at 516. Ezra doesn't arrive in Jerusalem till later than that, 458. But then looking at that 537 to 516 um, view, you can see... Um, Uh, you can see then where the where the various Persian kings kind of fit along that timeline. But that'll become clearer to us as we march along. So that's um, mention of Ahasuerus from verse six of chapter four. Let's um, let's go on to uh, verse seven. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Pause there and drop down to the study note. Here you have the Persian king, 464 to 424 BC, the successor to Xerxes, who we just mentioned. He authorized Ezra's return to Jerusalem. And we see that in chapter 7, verse 6. I think someone kind of asked a question, like, where, where, does, Ezra, <laughs> where does Ezra come into the story? Of course, that's, there's your answer, chapter 7. So here, Artaxerxes, the Persian king's successor to Xerxes. Verse 8, Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshe, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province of the river. And then here in parentheses, this is a copy of the letter that they sent, and parentheses. Um, if you look at this Osnapper, this probably refers to the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who we, uh, we heard about obviously earlier. End of Second Kings, if I'm not mistaken. 
All right. So then, now quoting in verse 11, the, the letter, to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. <laughs> They're probably using that in a different term, aren't they? It's interesting. Because in what ways is it wicked and rebellious? Well, objectively, toward God it was. That thus it was punished. But how do these wicked people mean it? <laughs> probably like the opposite. Or wicked and nasty toward us. Uncivilized in the, uh, the demand for, for worship of Yahweh. And they bribed the counselors for the purpose. And th then they said, okay. And then it says, the rain, they begin, you know, make accusations. So my comment is, why don't you go when the people make discouraged, why don't you beat up them people? That way you don't get the letter, and then you don't have the other problem down here with the <laughs> second letter. I get the sense that they're outnumbered. So maybe beating them up wouldn't work. Unless they've got like Samson with a with a jawbone yeah. or something like that. That's what they need. But now I get the sense I get the sense that they're uh, outnumbered and that there's these local hostility and they're dealing with this bureaucracy far away in Persia, you know, who's who's granted them this, but then the local rulers are opposing it, so they're making their appeal probably, and obviously the local powers are making their appeal and so, you know, one of the points that the study notes, they kind of make little devotional points as you go along too. And one of the devotional points is that while things may, because of uh, Americans, our, our view of the separation between, between church and state, you know, that American view of the separation between church and state really can lead us into some wrong theological thinking. It's not the same as the two kingdoms doctrine familiar to us as Lutherans, based on the words of Jesus, my kingdom is in this world, but not of this world. It's not identical to that. And the problem with this, with this separation between church and state, well, as we're finding out in our own culture, it doesn't work, does it? Because you can't actually be separated. If, you're, if it's not going to be Christianity, it's going to be something else. I, my kids have learned uh, about all kinds of religions um, in, in school. It's just, you've got a vacuum there. You can't actually have this dualism. Well, part of the separation between church and state as our unique American lens causes us to see, well, this stuff's political. It has nothing to do with God or Christianity. And this stuff is God and Christianity. It doesn't work that way. That's not accurate. It's not accurate biblically. It's not accurate anyway. Um, there's an interface between those two. And so what the editors often are pointing out here is that there, that Yahweh is, is a, you know, God is asserting, um, through Cyrus, through these various other kings, for his people to rebuild the temple, and they're being opposed, and the people opposing them aren't just doing that because they're neutral or political, they're doing that because they're working for Satan. They don't know that they're working for Satan, but that's what they're doing. No, they're working for false gods. And so they're opposing the work of the true God. So there isn't this clean break between church and state, between politics and religion. The two are wed together. And I think that that, along with the editors of the, of the Bible, you know, the, the Lutheran Study Bible, it really helps us to see that the kingdom of God, the church on earth, is frequently opposed and opposed by politics and politicians and government officials. And as St. Paul, you know, reminds us, our war isn't against the flesh and blood, it isn't against them, but the principalities and powers of darkness that stand behind them. And just because our war isn't against them per se doesn't mean that they aren't involved in warring against us and making life difficult for the church. So I think, I think one of the things we can get as a, a kind of a byproduct of this study and, and maybe studying the, the notes especially is, is, is reintegrating that view of, of the fact that 
that politics are very frequently, what we would call the left wing, are very frequently the battleground for spiritual realities, for spiritual things. So we don't want to ignore that. We don't want to ignore that. All right. So, um, yeah, we're going to see this theme continue of the people surrounding the temple um, being opposed to the rebuilding of the temple. Now, in verse 12, you have um, mentions of, you have mention of the Jews, and it's interesting here because um, if you look at the study note on 4.12, it says Jews, this is an Aramaic term, uh, well, you can see it there. <laughs> Yehudea, probably. The Judeans, quote-unquote. Um, not to be confused with modern practitioners of the Jewish religion, which was a later development. And then you can see, the, see page 1079 for more on this, this language of Judah. So these are people of Judea, the Judeans. All right, and so, yes, here's the complaint, of course. Um, they are, this is the latter half of verse 12, they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, when you have, um, when you have the walls up, what are those for? Defending the city. <laughs> you can close up the city and then it, and, and you can resist and rebel. And so that's the specter here, what's going on. And so if they, look, if they get the city rebuilt and the walls are finished, guess what? That's when the rebellion's going to start. They will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So, what are the tattletales saying? Hey, you're going to lose your taxes. <laughs> they're not going to. They're not going to give you money. That's kind of a fun reminder that at the heart of all false religion, in one way, shape, or form, is mammon, as well. Um, this worship of of money. And so, so their appeal, their appeal to Artaxerxes is, is hey, it's going to hurt your pocketbook. Verse 14, now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In other words, we are your loyal toadies, right? Um, something about the salt of the palace, verse uh, 14, possibly refers to a ceremony in which salt was eaten to ratify an oath or covenant. All right, so that's the likely referent there. Like, look, we're loyal to you. We've sworn our oath to you. We've eaten the salt. Okay, we are your loyal toadies. Mid-sentence, verse 15, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. Again, what's the frame here? Sedition and all of this stuff. I mean, it's all from a pagan perspective. So there's kind of a double entendre. We know that it's true vertically, but they mean it horizontally, which isn't precisely true. In fact, horizontally, it's almost the opposite. So we can see that things, you know, labels of good and evil were as convoluted then as they are now. And of course, you have our, our Lord telling us very plainly, you know, those who persecute the church will do so believing that they are doing a good thing, believing that they are serving God in doing it. All right, well, carrying on. Um, very end of verse 15. That was why this city was laid waste. Because <laughs> it was a hive of scum and villainy from our perspective. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, 
you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. All right. So, in other words, if you let the capital city of Judah be rebuilt and strengthened as a defense, you're going to not only lose the city; you're going to lose the whole area. And that's that's really what's so. The study note.、Um, And there's, of course, there's a bit of、um, hyperbole here, to say the least. So, if you look at the study note on 16, bureaucrats sought to avoid future charges of negligence. They're making it known to the king. I think it's more than that. Obviously, they don't want it rebuilt. They're opposing it. And then, no possession. That's hyperbole. Judah had not firmly controlled the region since the time of Solomon, 500 years earlier. But you know. These are politicians we're dealing with. They're not going to let facts stop them. To paraphrase one of my favorite political lines ever: "We believe in truth, not facts." <laughs> Isn't that great? That's such a nice summary of politics. <laughs> so these folks too believe in truth and not facts. They are.、Um, They're doing everything they can to sway the king. They're lying. They're deceiving. They're flexing their political muscles. Okay, that is the end of the quotation that began in verse eleven. So there is the end of the letter that was sent. What does the king do? Well, we don't have to wait long. That's verse seventeen. The king sent an answer. Now, quoting his answer. To Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings. And that the rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and the mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Who are those mighty kings that that fit this description? Well, these are kings of、uh, Israel, or yeah, of the, the twelve tribes. So Israel and Judah, yeah, David and Solomon. That's really it. That's really it. I think the study note will、um, affirm that, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. So he's saying, "Look, we went back in time. We didn't indeed find these facts to be the case. So then, what are we going to do?" Verse twenty-one. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? End quote. So there's the end of the letter, begun in verse seventeen. Verse twenty-three. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right. So Artaxerxes not helpful to the program here. Cyrus was helpful, and Darius will be helpful. Any questions or any comments? Every I don't. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? What's that reference to the province to the other side of the river? Is that the eastern side, or is that? So Samarian so side, Persia's Samaria. over like where Iran. Iran is. Was that map near? I can't remember if it was nearby in the. I think it is. Yes, page seven seventeen.、Um, Persia is where modern day Iran is. So、um, on the map on seven seventeen, you can see it all the way off to the right or eastern side. And so as they're talking about across the river, you know. 
I mean, obviously, if you look at Jerusalem, it's clear over by the Great Sea. So, what is this? What is this beyond the river? Yeah, that's a question for our vicar. Which which river are we talking about beyond the river? Are they talking about are they talking about like the Euphrates? Are they talking about that far east, or are they talking about um, you know what would be there? It's hard to it's hard to imagine it would be the Jordan, but it's possibly the Jordan. Any thoughts? Nothing. I didn't find that in any of the study notes, because like, that question kind of entered my mind, Barry, and I was hoping no one would ask it. <laughs> um, I was not digging in there. I was not looking in that resource. I, no doubt it does. I mean, yeah, those things are great. Okay, well, if anybody finds out, if anybody um, gets bored and gets on Google and finds out what exactly they refer to by the river in the, uh, this area beyond the river, which river are we talking about? Let me know. I'll, uh, I'll include that. Okay, well, it says on 410? For administrative purposes, the Persian Empire was divided into 20 districts called satrapies. The fifth of these was known as Beyond the River because it was made up of a territory beyond or west of the Euphrates. Ah, okay, well there's your answer. Sorry, I didn't, didn't see that. Let's go back to uh, 717 and take a look. See if we can find the... So it is the Euphrates. Persia, Euphrates... I don't know why does that how does that make sense though the claim of the letter then is that you won't control any look how big that is maybe they're discounting the arabian desert which is right there in the middle maybe that's what they're thinking maybe that's like like how we kind of just omit pendleton in our thinking to the south you know <laughs> maybe they're just kind of omitting the arabian desert because otherwise, that's weird. I mean, that's a vast area. And... But interesting. Interesting. Does the uh, Euphrates separate the east from the Middle East? Today's mm. time? I don't know. Does it? Is that familiar it to you? from the Persian Gulf up to... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that on the map. I just don't know. It says there's a note on 1 Kings 5 4 that the Assyrian and later Persian administrations would use a similar expression to describe the region of Israel in relation to the Jordan River. In relation to the Jordan River? From 1 Kings, 1 Kings 5. 5. Well, now I'm, I don't want to be the one that has the microphone, so which, <laughs> which is it? Is it the Jordan of the Euphrates? I think that's where we began. And now the, now the study Bible at least speaks to it, but kind of indicates maybe either one. Do you, or, or is there one definitively? I hate to take the time for people, poor people listening online. But the other thing is, if you're going to do a construction project, this time. Go fast. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. Go fast with your construction project. Don't give them a chance to revoke the permit or raise their fees. Well, now, now I'm interested in this. Interesting. Okay, let's just, let's do it this way. Study note on 410, beyond the river. For administrative purposes, the Persian Empire was divided into 20 districts called satrapies. The fifth of these was known as Beyond the River because it was made up of territory beyond or west of the Euphrates. See note on 1 Kings 5.4, which, 
which then says it's the Jordan. Okay, its satrap was responsible to the emperor for Syria, Samaria, and Cyprus. Okay, now quoting the province of Judah. In five eight. Okay, the province of Judah in chapter in Ezra five eight constituted a smaller unit of control within his satrapy. See note two one. Hmm. Very interesting. You know, usually, and it's first, it's first Kings five, four. First Kings. Yeah, maybe so. Like in terms of the division, maybe so. The study note on First Kings five four: Assyrian and later Persian administrations would use a similar expression to describe the region of Israel in relation to the Jordan River. Okay. To the best of my knowledge, that's inconclusive. What's that? On two two one um, Ezra two one, the study note on Ezra two one. Judah, other known Persian provinces west of the Euphrates. So then it couldn't have just been beyond if it was the Euphrates. That leans more toward the Jordan. Yes or no? Seems to be the case. Other known Persian provinces west of the Euphrates, because because then why would it be like beyond the river? That would be in that would be meaningless. Which one beyond the river? And that was kind of my point. That the Euphrates seems odd because there's such a huge landmass from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, even though a sizable portion of it's desert. Well, that data kind of tips my view toward um, the Jordan. That beyond the river would be the Jordan in this case by referring specifically to Israel. They could use beyond the beyond the river for Euphrates, but then they'd be referring to multiple provinces. If they're just referring to this one, it would seem to be beyond the Jordan. There's a little bit of ambiguity there. I see our vicar left. Hopefully, he ran to get a resource. We can get, a, we can get an answer to this question. Um, let's see. Okay, well, anyway, we'll, um, we'll just have to put the pause on that. That's, you know, the best I can do with the study Bible is it looks like it could be either, but maybe a little more reasonable to lean toward the Jordan in regard to this beyond the river, this phrase beyond the river. Um, but no doubt whether our vicar's looking into it now or whether he'll look into it later, <laughs> uh, we'll try to have an answer. We'll try to have an answer. So then back to... Back to the text, and that puts us at chapter 5. So where we left off again, Artaxerxes has said, no more building, and this has been enforced, and there is no more building until Artaxerxes is out of the way and Darius is king of Persia. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, of course, these are the authors of, of the the biblical books under their name. And so you can see exactly the historical context into which they're preaching and writing those texts. Um, and they've been mentioned before. When we were doing our study last week, we had cause to mention them. So now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. 
Right. Well, what's going on here? A little bit of civil disobedience. Right. God said through the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah in this case, build it. Artaxerxes had said, don't. We've got these two leaders mentioned again, Zerubbabel, who is kind of in charge of the civil sphere, and um, uh, what's his name? Jeshua, of course, who's the high priest to be. Verse 3, at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Yeah, why did they want the names? <laughs> ah, I'm going to nail them specifically. Who's on the church council? <laughs> Let's get their names and go after them. Okay, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. All right, so here is an Old Testament expression of Peter's axiom where we must obey God and not men. And so the default is to obey civil government, no doubt about it, Romans 13. Uh, Peter has a line about this in his first epistle. Um, so that is the default Christian position. Why? Because all authority comes from God. And um, we can refresh ourselves along the fourth commandment in the large catechism, and we can think of um, that, that authority on earth being established by God in the household first and foremost, where the father is the head of the house. And then that, um, that fatherhood extends out from the household in a fallen world into these two spheres. You have the fa fathers in the church and fathers in the state. All that authority flows down from God. And so that's to be honored. And those the people in those positions are to be honored because they hold those positions, because those positions are extensions of the very authority of God. And so you can see there, we, we call these the three estates, the estate of the family, the estate of the state, and the estate of the church. And from these two of the three estates, you can see the two kingdoms, can't you? You can see the, the church and the state, and you can see those so all of this is very helpful to keep in mind. Now, what happens, though, when in the family, in the church, or in the state, you have men contradicting God? And you have that authority, that God-given authority being abused. Now you have Peter, we must obey God and not man. Now you have Haggai and Zechariah, build the temple anyway. And there are many examples of this, really, throughout the Old Testament scriptures of subversion of authority when that authority is contrary to the Word of God. Okay? So, um, yeah, and that, that extends not only in the civil sphere, but also in the ecclesiastical sphere. I mean, as children and heirs of the Reformation, we saw that firsthand in the Reformation, that the fathers of the church and the medieval in the medieval West had so abused their authority as to undermine the very word of God, and so we rendered them due disobedience. We must obey God and not men in, in the sphere of the church. And so um, we have a duty to disobey those who are in authority who uh, are at contra-purposes to the word and work of God. All right. So then... Um, Verse 6, this is a copy of the letter. I love that they've retained these letters. Isn't this a neat touch? These historical documents have become part of the narrative. It's like, look, you can read what was actually written. It's really cool. It's really cool. This is a copy of the letter that 
Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river. See again, doesn't that seem to lean towards Jordan is the river? I think so. I think I become more and more convinced of that, but we'll let you know definitively later on. All right, so Tatnai sends this letter. He, of course, is the governor of the province beyond the river, and uh, Shethar Bozanai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. Now, quoting, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king, that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. Isn't that interesting? It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure. We also asked them their names for your information. <laughs> Isn't this a study? Isn't this a study of bureaucracy and political nastiness? We also asked them for their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. Verse 11, and this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. <laughs> Sorry, as much as you've got authority, your authority is just a little trumped. Just a little trumped here. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are building the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished, i.e. Solomon. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Okay, I love this answer because they're dealing with a bunch of politicians and a bunch of political speak and a bunch of jargon. And what do they do? They lay out theology. It's just a theological statement. They don't say, well, you see, um, you know, we were wrongly oppressed. And if you compare our plight to those of our conquered neighbors, you know, we need equality. And they don't make a civil argument. Isn't that delightful and shocking? They just say straight out, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. <laughs> okay, We're rebuilding the house that was built many years ago. And because we angered this God, we suffered this punishment. And now it is this God who is having us rebuild it. He has removed our shame. He has forgiven us. And it is being reestablished. I love this. I love this. It, it is just basically a proclamation of the word of God. And a, a complete trumping of this sort of, if you will, horizontal authority, but man to man, as just going straight to God. And, you know, what a testimony to these pagans. So, again, um, well, we'll go back. We'll look at some study notes here in just a minute. Um, but let's go back to verse 13, right in the middle of it. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon. And they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar. Remember, this is the, I think this is the puppet king kind of guy of, uh, under Cyrus, who doesn't really do anything, Zerubbabel and Jeshua really run the show. But anyway, this is the, they're looking at the formality here. So delivered the one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. 
End quote. So that was the response then that、uh, Tatanai and these guys who are, you know, tattling up to Darius. This was the report that they received from the Judeans, from the Jews. Now the letter of complaint continues in verse sixteen. Yeah. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. No, no. There's the end. There's the end of the quote. Sorry, I was off by a line. There's the little half quotation mark, whatever that thing's called. Therefore. If it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Interesting, interesting. You know, probably next to that file from Cyrus is probably a file from Artaxerxes. <laughs> That's probably what they're doing here.、Um, but it, what a fascinating, what a fascinating bit of history! These letters just stuck right in the middle of of sacred page. So、um, let's just let me see if I've highlighted anything in the notes that's kind of interesting. Of course, yeah. In 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 thirteen, you have these. You have、uh, Cyrus referred to as the king of Babylon, which we don't want to get confused about. This is Cyrus of Persia, conquered Babylon and so called its king. And then,、um, yeah, reference to Sheshbazar. We got.、Uh, look at the study note on sixteen. Cyrus had authorized Sheshbazar to rebuild the temple. Which he likely started, but work on the foundation was completed by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. There is no further men- mention of Sheshbazar. Of course, verse seventeen, Tatanai wants Darius to verify existence of Cyrus' decree. Oh, interesting take. So maybe they don't think it was true. Maybe they think the Jews are lying about that. And then let's just read、um, the little summary here.、Uh, the note on verses six through seventeen: The Persian governor Tatanai discovers the truth about the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple to the quote-unquote great God of heaven. Thanks be to God for faithful government officials who seek and report the truth. Pray for them. Vote for them. Encourage good people to seek public office. The God of Heaven rules among us through faithful leaders in both church and state. The great God of our salvation cares for every aspect of our lives. O great God of Heaven, work for the peace of your servants on earth. Amen. Yeah, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Luther includes in there pious, pious government or devout rulers. That kind of language. That's what we want. That's what we want. And and we want.、Um, I mean, what does pious or devout mean? Ideally, that they be believe be believers in God and that they be converted to Christianity and they be governing in accordance with His will. I mean, this is the again, this is the worldview. Of the uh, of um, the catechisms, the the large and small catechisms are the foundational worldview for us, and really they go back even. I mean, these principles go back even before Luther's time. Luther wasn't inventing them in his small catechism. This is the this is the majority view of the Western tradition, the Western Church. Is that we want our left hand kingdom leaders to be Christians and to be good and faithful in their tasks, and as the as the、um, Again, just to kind of like、uh, poke the bear here on this American separation of church and state, which isn't at all Christian or Lutheran,、um, we're to judge our leaders. The the fourth commandment of the large catechism says we're to judge our leaders on the basis of whether or not they're ruling according to natural law, that is, according to the law and will and goodness of God, and whether or not they're protecting and supporting the church. If they're failing on one or both of those. They're liable to our judgment and criticism. Now, that might need to be mitigated somewhat, depending our, on our position. 
But, but let's not forget the three estates. The three estates grant authority to the father and head of each household to make judgments within his own household, to make those pronouncements. We want to respect and honor that authority. Since the state here is, is the one in question, we also want to say fathers in the church have been granted positions of authority to point out where fathers in the state have failed, where they are not protecting the church, where they are not ruling and according with the natural law. So it shouldn't be astonishing to us at all as Lutherans when when our pastors make moral statements about the governance of politicians and government officials in the left-hand kingdom and point out and say, hey, this is, this is not in keeping with the natural law. This is not in keeping with the protection of the church. This is, this is a failure to lead in a God-pleasing way. Okay, so again, that, that proclamation is based on the authority given to the fathers in the church. Now, where might the fathers in the state be critical of the fathers of the church? Well, look at the fathers of the church, for example, in the Roman Catholic scandal and the, um, the abuse of children. The fathers in the state ought to say that is not only contrary to all the creeds and to the church, but it's contrary to natural law. And they ought to reach in and and be forceful with their authority and their statements about the injustice and unrighteousness of that. So God, in other words, what I'm trying to show you here is, is uh, the American government is, is set up with um, checks and balances, the branches of government. The three estates are likewise set up where you have the father in the household and you've got the fathers in the church and the fathers in the government, and these all function together as checks and balances to call one another out when we get out of line. Right? The dream that the dream that the church or in general or pastors in particular should make no kinds of political pronouncements is really an American idea with no grounding whatsoever in the scriptures or the Lutheran tradition. Now, to be sure, when pastors speak out, we want to be speaking out on matters of, of truth and morality. We don't want to say, well, this guy wants a road here and the other guy wants a road there, so let me tell you what... No, that's an abuse. Okay, that, if we can isolate things as strictly political, then we pastors we don't want to waste any time on that. But where it's, where it's matters of morality and truth, matters of God's word... We want to speak out, and we want to speak out, again, affectionately and in love, but we want to speak out boldly and truthfully in those contexts. So I think a great example of this, generally speaking, in our time has been the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, President Harrison. I think he's done a very good job in engaging, uh, because he has, we, he has authority in, as a representative of our church body to speak to the abuses of certain politicians, the infringements of certain rights. And he's spoken about, uh, out about these things in a, in a firm way, but in a charitable way, in a way that isn't radical and doesn't jump to conclusions or lead us too far. Um, but nonetheless, in a, in a way that's faithful and pointing out some of the abuses that have occurred even in our own time. So, um, by the way, uh, President Harrison has just recently written a letter to uh, pastors and congregations. I'm still thinking of how best to share that content with our people here at Faith, but it's accessible to you online if you're interested. It just talks about everything from um, primarily around the vaccine mandate and concerns that people have about that on one side or the other. Um, obviously, there's a lot of passion and uh, and a lot of consternation in Christian people and all people. There's people who've left, lost their jobs uh, rather than receive the vaccine. So he speaks in a very pastoral way to these questions and to these concerns and lays out, I think, a very fair and faithful approach. The bottom line is, let's not morally judge one another on vaccine or no vaccine, mask or no masks. Let's leave these in the realm of Christian conscience. God hasn't said, so let's leave it there. If you disagree vehemently with your brother or sister, relax. These are superficial things. These are 
temporal things. We can agree to disagree on those matters while retaining unity of spirit, bond of peace. Okay? And then in terms of, is it the government's role to mandate, to enforce these things? Um, that's, that's where I, I really encourage you to read President Harrison's letter, see his approach to that question. Obviously, I'll give you my own approach to that question. No, the government oversteps its bounds in mandating this particular vaccine in, these, in this particular context with the particular facts we have at hand. That's an, that's an overstepping. It's a trampling of Christian consciences. Um, maybe the linchpin of that is that this vaccine in particular in its development uh, let's just leave it there. And its development utilizes um, aborted babies right? in its development. A Christian can in good conscience stand up and say, I don't want to take that. A Christian can in good conscience stand up and say, I've got no problem taking that. All right. Fair. There again, we're in Christian freedom. We're in the freedom of the conscience. But is it the right and role of the state to say you must? I commend President Harrison's letter to you. It's very faithful, very good, very engaging. All right, so these are some of the difficulties we find ourselves in, navigating these, these orders of creation, these three estates, and the authority that God has given, wanting to be respectful to God, wanting to be respectful to authority, and yet wanting to obey God and not man. And all of this gives us really fertile ground to see that God's people have always wrestled with these issues. God's people have always struggled with these issues um, through the Old Testament all the way up to the present. So we want to do so charitably. All right, well, what does Darius say in response? Then Darius the king made a decree. And search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. Verse 2. And in Ecbatana, the capital that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written. A, okay, here now, quoting. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be sixty cubits, and its breadth sixty cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Isn't that an incredible thing? As Egypt enriched Israel as, as they were exiting, now the pagans enrich the people to rebuild the temple. Really fascinating. Verse 5, And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon, be restored, and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place, you shall put them in the house of God. End quote. All right. Well, I don't want to leave you with a cliffhanger. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, uh, Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. You know, so this is interesting. I mean, here's a really, really faithful ruler because he goes back and he says, no, this is what the king promised. I'm going to back that, even at political cost, maybe to my contemporaries, to these people who might be offended that I'm going to uphold that. So here Darius really shows himself to be a good and faithful king operating in faithful work, um, good faith and um, upholding what was previously promised. Okay, verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders. Ooh, ouch. For these elders, not only shall you not oppose them, you shall help them. These elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full 
and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings, to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Very interesting! I mean, we have no reason to believe that Darius is what we would think of as a believer per se, at least not here in the text, in this text. I don't know if it's broader ever says about Darius. But, um, but nonetheless, he's being faithful to Cyrus' decree, and he wants all this to be done, and he wants them to pray for him, probably one of many gods he wants to pray for him, but, you know, and take what you can get, I guess. Okay, very fast, verse 11. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters, changes this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. Ouch! And his house shall be made a dunghill. Whew! Yeah, so nobody's going to mess with this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Dramatic and amazing. As you can see from the heading the editors have chosen, the temple finished and dedicated. <laughs> so it had its effect. All right, no cliffhangers. My kids hate it when I do that to them. I know you don't because you can just read on ahead. But um, yeah, next, next week, good stuff. The temple finished, Passover celebrated. Very positive things to look forward to. The Lord be with you.